So part six is really now coming to the conclusion of it all, the religious groups at the time of Jesus. And we'll be familiar with them because we read about them in Scripture. As we come into the story of the New Testament and the life of Jesus, we'll be familiar with the groups that we're going to be looking at. But let's not forget, really, the bookends of this, where we began and where we're ending. We, we began with the exiles having returned, having rededicated that uh, place of worship, the, uh, the temple, um, or certainly the altar uh, there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the walls. Uh, structured worship could happen again after 70 or over 70 years where it hadn't happened uh, for the people and in Jerusalem. That's how it began, that we were getting ready for just the right time. Well, now tonight, I believe we see why it was just the right time and how it took 400 years to get to this point so that the world into which Jesus came would help us And everyone since uh, the early church understand the significance of just exactly when Jesus came. And so we looked at that passage in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, that said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians, uh, Paul writing, tells us, well, Christ came at the right time because this is what could happen that we could, that not only would the prophets, the prophecies be fulfilled of the Old Testament, but that we would understand our need of a saviour. So as we have that in the back of our minds, and that's where we'll conclude this evening, we're going to look at Judaism during the days of Jesus. And you know, in many ways, it wasn't unlike our own days. But then I could be standing 100 years ago and say the same thing. It wasn't unlike the days back then because this is replicated with every generation. During uh, the time of Jesus, Judaism was fragmented. If you think uh, the Protestant Reformed Church is fragmented today, well, believe it or not, uh, the Jewish religion was just as fragmented. And on top of this, you had politics and religion going hand in hand. Now, does that sound any different from today or indeed 100 years ago? It seems we haven't learned anything. And that's where the danger comes in, because as we'll see, those who are the most political and with profession of faith are actually the ones who are the most cold-hearted in what they do. And so we're going to look at these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and the Samaritans, before we look at what were the structures of uh, worship at the time of Jesus. Whenever I was a child, I used to go to a Sunday afternoon children's meeting called The Searchers in a local Presbyterian church just around the road from us. And one of the songs that I learned there was, I don't want to be a goat. Nope. I don't want to be a goat. Nope. Because a goat's got no hope. Nope. I don't want to be a goat. Quite a bizarre little song, but it actually gets better because what it teaches is, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee because this is how far you'll see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee because a Sadducee is sad, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I just want to be a sheep, bleat, bleat, whatever it was, because a sheep has a shepherd. I just want to be a sheep. 
That was my first introduction to Pharisees and Sadducees. And if you learn or remember nothing else from tonight, remember that a Pharisee, well, that's how far you'll see. And you don't want to be a Sadducee because you'll be sad, you see. Forget about the goat bit uh, and maybe think about the sheep. So we'll begin with the Pharisees. And it's true, they really couldn't see that far. They were a group that really are the oldest of the groups at the time of Jesus. Now, relatively young, they didn't exist pre-exile. They, they grew in that period of 400 years, more, more likely the last 200 years as we come to the birth of Jesus. And really, the Pharisees were a, a widespread of people. They were lay people. They were lawyers. They were scribes. They were priests. Now, the interesting thing I think you're going to learn tonight is that the priests are completely different. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots and the Samaritans are religious groupings, all claiming Judaism as their religion. But they each had a different way of living it out. And so whenever you look at the kind of people, they're lay people, lawyers, scribes and priests, well, they're your normal people. In fact, the Pharisees were the most popular of the religious groupings. They had the most amount of people being attracted. And the Pharisees would, would teach their people based on what the Pharisees believed. But of course, then everyone would still go to temple because, remember, temple worship wasn't as we would know it. Temple worship was for sacrifice. It was for, it was for that act of worship that made you right with God. Your actual teaching took place uh, perhaps in the temple courts where Pharisees and Sadducees would teach. But this was the widest group. And although they were small, they had about 6,000 Pharisees, they did have a huge following. And they were a legalistic sect. That's why we say that's as far as they'll see. Because what they did is they held to two things. They held to, they held to Scripture, the Pentateuch, that's the first part of the Old Testament, but they also held to oral tradition. Now, it's still the same today, believe it or not. Uh, we in the Presbyterian Church would say that we hold to Scripture. And please don't hear this as a criticism of uh, the Anglican Church, but the Anglican Church would hold to three things. Uh, they would hold to Scripture. They would hold to uh, the, the standard of faith, like the Westminster Confession, and they would hold to tradition. And those three things are what helps make a decision. Sorry, we, we hold to the two, Scripture and then the subordinate standards, and that's what helps us to shape what we think. But the Pharisees, of course, they didn't have the standards, but what they held to was the, the tradition of Scripture, but also what they called the oral tradition. And the oral tradition was simply what had been passed down. It might have been a teacher, a rabbi who taught well, and people caught on to what they were saying. It didn't necessarily have to be biblical. And so they would follow what the oral tradition taught, but they would go even further back. Remember, not written down, starting to feel a bit like Chinese whispers, they would even hold to what Moses said that wouldn't even be contained in Scripture. So whenever we talk about the Pharisees and their legalism, they thought they were doing the right thing because they were not only holding to Scripture, but they were listening to those from the generations that had gone before them who had interpreted Scripture and its understanding. And so they held to both Scripture and the oral tradition. 
So that's who they are. Key thing to believe about the Pharisees is that they believed in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. You die, but if you had faith in God, you would be resurrected to go to paradise. Now, that's going to be key because who they come up against. And so they believed in that. And a lot of people believe that the Pharisee party eventually became the dominant party in the post-New Testament uh, period. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, what happens is then the Pharisees actually cease in 72 AD. Uh, They they stop being a, a religious party simply because the Romans come in and obliterate Jerusalem and, and really the structure of worship. Now, the Pharisees may have originated from the Hasmoneans, those folks we were looking at two weeks ago, and the Maccabean revolt against uh, the powers at that time. And so whenever you see who they are, when they come for a very pure, a very legalistic view of worship, well, that's exactly how the Hasmoneans and the, the Maccabees started out. And so that's potentially where they came from about 200 years before Jesus, where the others maybe settled down, remember, to being the ruler and the high priest, while the Pharisees perhaps were the scholars who, who looked at Scripture to try and understand it. And as I said, they were popular with the people, but actually Jesus challenged them the most on many of the points that they said. So that's the Pharisees. That's how far they could see because they had a very legalistic view of Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, let me see. I thought I had a Sadducee in here. I don't. Uh, so we'll have to stick with the Pharisee. But we're going to say just a little bit about the Pharisees. Or sorry, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, again, included many priests. So as a priest who served in the temple, you could choose who you wanted to follow and listen to. Because as long as you upheld your priestly duty, which had been set down by Moses, then you could listen to your Sadducee or you could listen to your Pharisee. And so the Sadducees not only included many priests, but they also included many of the aristocracy. Now that immediately tells you where they're heading. They're heading for wealth and they're heading for power. Religious power and political power. And does not make sense whenever we understand the Sadducees? You know, the Pharisees are always there, but the Sadducees in any interaction we have with Jesus almost have an area of superiority about Jesus or uh, about them as they approach Jesus. They, they don't even want to engage with Jesus. They just want to say he's wrong, whereas the Pharisees will enter into debate and discussion. So the, Pharisee, or the Sadducees are all about power. They want to support whatever's working well in society, be that the Roman government, be that whoever is the current high priest and the most high priest at that time. The difference with the Pharisees is that they did not believe in the oral tradition. They believed only in uh, the Pentateuch, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so that's where they come into another issue with the Pharisees because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the reason why they don't believe that is because, according to them, it's not mentioned in Genesis to Deuteronomy, but it's Jesus who shows them that the idea of resurrection can, in fact, be proved from the Pentateuch. They were a very small group with a very small following, but they were the most powerful of them all. 
And uh, they also had a very low view of God's providential control over humans and the world. In other words, God was there to be worshipped, but actually you were the one who could be the mover and the shaker. So you can see they had the most power politically, religiously, and financially, and yet they're the ones who disregard God the most. So that's why we shouldn't be surprised when we hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees being at odds with each other. And that's why it makes it even more interesting towards the end of the Gospels that they unite against Jesus. So let's talk about a group of people that actually you will be familiar with, well, some of you anyway, because we talk about these people within our own living memory. We're talking about the Essenes and the Qumran community. And the Essenes uh, consisted of two variations. One that was very male only and lived down at Qumran near the Dead Sea. And the other that had married families and they lived throughout Palestine, but still held to what the Essenes were doing. Now, here's a map uh, for you on the screen. And what we're doing is we're looking at this part of the uh, Dead Sea. And let me zoom in for you. This is where Qumran is, caves of Qumran overlooking the Dead Sea. Um, And in 1956, two shepherd boys were at Qumran and they lost a goat. And they thought a goat had gone into one of these caves. And so to get the goat out of the caves, they started to throw stones in and all of a sudden, crack. And when they went in to discover what had happened, they discovered they had broken one of these very tall um, jars, a jar of clay. And of course, what that led to was untold information about Scripture that we didn't think we would ever find. Hebrew original text, a full text of Isaiah that confirmed actually what was in the King James Version was right, because there was only ever one version of Isaiah. And so this meant a second full copy of Isaiah. Uh, it, It helped with other parts of understanding that may not have been considered a scripture, certainly not Jewish scripture, because the canon of Jewish scripture was closed at that point, but they confirmed what had been happening. And so th- there's untold caves. This is a picture of cave one. Each cave was numbered uh, as it was discovered. And really down at Qumran, this community had held, they'd wanted to keep a record um, of what was true Jewish faith. Because remember what happened in the closing century before Christ. The great library at Alexandria was destroyed. It was burned. Do you remember the lighthouse at Alexandria? We talked about it at week two. Alexander the Great built that great city. Lost everything, even scripture that we could have benefited from today. And so what this did was it replaced it. And it took 1,956 years to discover it. It's a fascinating story if you read the story of of, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran. But the people who kept them in these jars were the Essenes, as I've said. What they did was they lived a very uh, aesthetic life. They they wore white robes or or off-white robes. There was no fashion statement about them. There was nothing fancy. They lived in community. Um, I suppose today you'd call it a kibbutz if you wanted a a Hebrew word for it. But if you look down about four lines up, they called themselves the Yahad, which simply means community. And 
they were trying to remove themselves from what was, let's call it, the community of the temple and actually become a community of true worship. They had so many issues with the Pharisees and the Sadducees because of their involvement with the Roman authorities. And actually what the Qumran community did, the Essenes did, they took um, prophetic literature like Daniel from the Old Testament and saw themselves as the fulfillment of it. They took Micah and saw themselves as the fulfillment of the prophet Micah. So they thought that from them would come the Messiah by removing themselves from what they saw as the tainted place of worship. Remember, this is now a 200-year cycle because it's 200 years ago since the Maccabees did the very same thing except the Maccabees headed towards Jerusalem. Here we have um, the Essenes moving from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. And by the way, where they position themselves in the Dead Sea has very apocalyptic end times meanings. And that's why they were there, because they saw themselves as being the fulfillment of what would be the last days and the Messiah coming to liberate the true Israel. They uh, had a leader, and the leader was called the teacher of righteousness. His opponent was the wicked priest and the man of the lie. So you can see they're, they're really targeting there the priests in the temple and accusing them of false worship. They were the sons of light, and everyone else, both Jews and Romans who didn't agree with what they did, were called sons of darkness. These are the most, not even, I wouldn't even say militant, but they are the deepest in terms of a very particular view of what true Judaism was, and they would not shift from it. In fact, they were calling uh, the Jews back to this way of worship. Now, the next one's a wee bit familiar to you because we're going to talk about the Zealots. They're also called the Sicarii. And the Zealot party wanted to overthrow Roman rule by force. This will come as no surprise to you because we know of Simon the Zealot. By the way, that's a statue of him there on the screen. One of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus. He was always the one who wanted to see Israel restored to a true notion of a biblical self-ruling Israel. So, he, so Simon came from this party known as the Zealots, and they probably began as a party in the first decade um, AD and were clearly involved in the fight against the Romans uh, in AD 67 to 70 before Jerusalem was uh, raised to the ground. Now, the Sicarii could be another group, but it's most likely that they are the same group, the Zealots, just another name for them. And the Sicarii was the type of dagger that was used. So the zealots were so zealous, they carried little daggers with them. And if they had the opportunity to assassinate a, a, a Roman or indeed a Jew who they believed was a traitor, well, they would do it. This is the lengths that they would go to to ensure that there was a self-ruling Jewish state. Now, these were not premeditated. This was take your chance and go. So the Sakari was like a dagger that they could easily hide, but yet bring out when they needed to. And they did fight the Romans and were the group that died at Masada. Do you remember that's the fortress down south where Herod the Great had built in AD 74 when a group of Jews made a last stand in the Jewish revolt against Rome. So that's the zealots. Like the Pharisees, towards uh, the middle of the 70s AD, they too die out. 
Now, the next group are an interesting bunch, because again, we know of them. They're called the Samaritans. And I read a report um, from The Economist, actually, um, not so long ago, uh, and the question was, is there a future for the Samaritans? And, and they were talking about the Jewish celebration of uh, the Festival of Booths, um, or Tabernacles, you know, that's the harvest uh, festival for the Jews. And they talked about a very small number of Samaritans celebrating this same festival, because we have to remember that the Samaritan history and the Jewish history are the same. But of course, the Jews don't consider the Samaritans Jews. And the Samaritans are well known for believing that proper worship of the Old Testament God should occur on at Mount Gerizim. And that's what Mount Gerizim looks like today. Um, you can't really see it, but it's all built up. And that's really the top of the mount there. That's where Samaritans believe there's nothing built on it. And that's where they believe that true worship of God should happen. They, like the Sadducees, did not believe in a bodily resurrection. And they too only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as the only authority of your knowledge of God. Now, they did believe in a future Messiah, be that a Moses, be that another prophet or a Messiah figure themselves. And in the days of Jesus, there, as we know, there were significant Jewish Samaritan tensions. And when northern Israel was defeated by the Assyrians, so how the Samaritans got there was before exile in 722 BC, non-Jewish people were transplanted into the Samaritan region. And thus the Samaritans were considered ethnically half-Jewish at best by many Jews, but also by many Jews, they were not even considered Jewish. But also the anti-Samaritan Jew, John Hykanus, who we met two weeks ago in the Hasmonean line, he destroyed the 200-year-old temple at Mount Gerizim in about 128 BC so that the Samaritans could not uh, profess any belief in the Jewish God. And so the Samaritans, they still worship to this day in Samaria and around the world, very small number of them, but they're not recognized as Jews, but yet their history is being by being part of the Jews. So that's the main groups, and that shouldn't surprise you because you've heard of each and every one of them. Maybe not the Essenes in terms of, uh, we, don't, we come across them very little in the biblical text, but we know of the Samaritans, we know of the Zealots, we know of the Pharisees, we know of the Sadducees. So hopefully that tells you a little bit about all of the political groups, the main political groups, should I say, because there were others uh, who were also floating around at this time, causing all kinds of problems. It was a melting pot. I've just given you maybe five different approaches to understanding God and five different approaches of theology. This was not only a cultural melting pot, it was a religious melting pot. And as you would expect, as the Romans took hold, each party became more entrenched in what it believed. That's why we see the zealots and the Pharisees dropping off the human history page because they were so... uh, cornered into what they believed, that there was no way they could pull back from it. And so they simply had to be dissolved and destroyed. So in amongst all of these groups, what did Jewish worship look like? I don't know how you imagine the Bible. 
if you've never been to the Holy Land, and I haven't been to the Holy Land, but if you've never been, you can't understand how this works. And sometimes I think, we, we kind of think, well, everyone went to the temple on a Sunday or a Saturday, and that's where everyone did worship, because that's the big church. Everyone went there. But Jerusalem isn't like Anna Long. Jerusalem uh, is bigger, but also you're talking about a Jewish time where you would have people coming from 20, 30, 40 miles with no horses, a donkey on a cart perhaps, um, but you just simply wouldn't travel. So those who lived in Jerusalem had the benefit of the temple, but Jerusalem itself was a very transient city, people coming and going. Of course, we recognize that at least three times in the year there were those um, traveling uh, festivals where people would have to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, on your page, or not on your page, I haven't given you this, um, but you might need to go home and look at the um, live stream to see this, um, or the video of this to see this a little bit better. I have to say, I'm very thankful for the English Standard Version study Bibles, because all of the maps and charts have come from there, and they're absolutely excellent. But what you have is a, a spread out, um, you have a spread out city of Jerusalem. The two major structures the palace of Herod and the temple. This was the Jerusalem at the time of Jerusalem, uh, or sorry, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And it, it's, a, it's an overburgeoning city. You know, it's not really even within the walls by this stage. You can see out the back uh, on the northern side where it is a bit flatter, they've started building outside of the wall. And of course, in the years to come, that would increase dramatically. But even as we compared this, whenever we looked at Nehemiah, such a big city in those 400 years of growth from Nehemiah to the time. Um, in fact, if memory serves me right, that was Nehemiah's wall, that middle bit. From what I can remember from our studies in Nehemiah, it was so small right there in the center of Jerusalem, but now it's so enlarged. This was the work that Herod had done in rebuilding Jerusalem, and right at the center, maybe not for Herod, because he looked to his palace, but for Jewish worship was the temple. Now there on your handout, you have uh, what the temple looked like. And we look at that major part of the temple a little bit closer. But we're familiar with a wee bit of the temple, aren't we? We hear of the temple courts. There was a part of the temple where Jews could go. There was a part of the temple where there was trading done because you couldn't bring everything you needed with you for the particular sacrifices so you could buy it there. And of course, we know that Jesus called it a den of robbers because he went in and turned over the tables because even the temple had its own money. It had to be holy money that was spent to purchase holy sacrifices. And so it became a whole industry around. There was uh, the, the court of women, and then there was the, the court where the men could go, Jewish men, and worship. Then you get into the temple itself, where uh, beyond the altar, but only the priests would go, and they would offer the sacrifices there on behalf of the people. And in there, you would have, right at the center, all of the ornaments, the lampstands, the incense, the oil that were burning day and night in the temple as a sweet fragrance unto the Lord. This building is significant, hugely significant. And in many ways, it's how Herod kept power. 
He kept giving the temple whatever it needed because to keep the Jews happy, to stop revolt, like Herod was spinning plates trying to keep all of these religious groups happy. And then he had the Sadducees breathing down his neck who were not only religious but also political. He was spinning plates and the only way to keep this whole melting pot from boiling over was to continue in a way to pay tribute to the Jewish religion. And so the temple there, uh, as we know, 19 BC, Herod extensively uh, increased it and built around it so that it would be fit for what was needed. And so there were pilgrimage festivals, three of them that every Jew had to attend. That of Sukkot, which is tabernacles or booths, the festival of tabernacles or booths that we've talked about already. There was Pesach, which was Passover, and then there was Shavuot, which was the weeks, festival of weeks or of Pentecost. And so there were other times you would go uh, for cleansing, um, for uh, you would you know, purification after childbirth, uh, presenting your child to the temple, as we know Mary and Joseph did with Jesus. So the temple was a very, very busy place, but it was in Jerusalem. It was controlled, it was dominated by the priests, but then the priests were dominated by the Sadducees because they were the ones who thirsted for power. And so they controlled really what went on at the temple. Uh, and, you know, Various groups, the Pharisees and the Essenes, sought to influence the temple practice, but they had no chance. Hence why the Essenes then withdrew themselves. And that's why then the Pharisees loved to debate, because they wanted to prove how right they were. And I just put in there something just so that you know about how the temple worked. The priests and Levites were divided into 24 courses or groups, and each course would come to Jerusalem about twice a year to perform their duties in the temple for one week. They would then go home, and they would then uh, purify themselves and get ready for the next one. And later literature will tell us that the lay Jews were likewise divided into groups. And some of the lay Jews would come to Jerusalem along with the priests and Levites to witness the temple offerings for that week. Those remaining at home would gather during the week to read the creation account and to fast. So this had a huge grip on the life and people of Jerusalem. The amount of money that people were expected to put into worship was phenomenal. But it wasn't just the temple, it was also the synagogue. Now, we hear about the synagogue very little, and we know very little about them. This, again, from the ESV Study Bible, you have it there on your handout, but on the screen as well, oh, let me move it across, you have uh, really an idea of what a ruined synagogue, they think, what it built up was like. It's actually an interesting one, because if you look at the center of that synagogue, you would have seats around the side, stone seats around the side, there was an open space in the middle, And that's where the teaching would be done from. So week in, week out, you would have your teaching done in the middle. It became very Greek almost in the lecture hall idea. You would come and you would learn. But what is interesting is if you go to Geneva today, and if you go to Calvin's church in Geneva, it was laid out identical to the synagogue. But the interesting thing is Calvin would not have had access to what a synagogue looked like. And so Calvin's ministry began with people sitting around the side and him in the center, maybe walking around. I don't know how Calvin would have done it, but he had a huge open space in front of him. And so it turns out that perhaps 
throughout history, the best way to teach people is to get them around the sides and someone walks up and down the middle. Um, there's a committee meeting tomorrow night, isn't there? So um, all in favor of changing the pews? No, <laughs> too controversial. But the word synagogue itself comes from the Greek term gathering, because that's what the synagogue was for, gathering for worship. But we have to understand that there were two ways to worship. The temple was the center of worship, those significant moments, those, those three pilgrimage festivals that we talked about, but also then the Day of Atonement, those moments where as Israel they came together and knew forgiveness of sins as a people. That was worship. But in the weekend, week out, worship was, I guess, like what we're doing now. It was coming together and learning. It was learning how to understand Scripture. It was learning to how to understand God and how God worked. And if you look at that diagram on the right-hand side, you'll see a little pool. There would still be opportunities for cleansing, for baptism. The Jews practiced baptism pre uh, the church. And baptism was uh, multiple times. You could walk in and walk out and you could come again however many weeks or years in the future and do it again to be cleansed, to be purified. Because remember, that was the whole thing. You had to be purified to come and to offer the sacrifices that you would be going to in the temple. But so too in the synagogue, not offering sacrifices, but being ready to learn about God it's not that the synagogue was some hole in the hedge. The synagogue was a serious place. And so all of the rituals and all of the practices had to be performed there to ensure that people were ready to meet God. Now, the synagogue uh, was ruled um, mainly by uh, an important man in the community. We know this. Uh, we see it in Scripture in, uh, as Jesus meets different people, the ruler of the synagogue and things like that. And one inscription on one uh, synagogue that has been found records that the title was handed down from father to son. And in many ways, the ruler of the synagogue became a priestly family. And so the synagogue... Uh, perhaps grew as Jerusalem grew and as the country grew and so worship needed to be. But most likely it had its early, early growings in Babylon, in exile. Do you remember the psalm that was recorded by the rivers of Babylon? I'm not talking about the Boney M song, but actually what is recorded as a psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So what did the people do in exile? They still got together and worshiped. Now, it wasn't the temple, but they were still able to come together and remember God. And so probably at that point, as they were in the great canals of Babylon, they started thinking about how to worship God. And that, of course, grew over those 500 years. So that at the time of Jesus, there would have been a local synagogue with a local ruler. Synagogues now are, are very different. If you go into a synagogue, it's, it's a bit like ours, very auditorium style, where the, the the pews are all facing forward to a central part. Uh, but yet the practice is still the same. What would have happened in the synagogue at the time of Jesus still happens today. If you go into a synagogue, then the, the senior uh, of the synagogue brings out the scrolls to be read. And with a reading stick, will read the Hebrew scroll. Um, and that's the practice that has been happening for 2,000 years, for 2,500 years of this structure of synagogues throughout the world.
The melting pot into which Jesus came was cultural and political, but it was even more so uh, religious. And I want us to turn to Mark chapter 8 so that we can see this. We could have turned to a number of passages. Um, We could have turned to the fig tree. Uh, Remember in Holy Week, the fig tree, uh, Jesus uh, curses the fig tree and it dies and withers to show just how dead and how withered the religious structures of the Jews were. That's why it was the key moment. They had reached their moment in another 40 years, they'd be gone. They'd be written out of history because uh, the, Ro- the Romans would come and, and finally conquer Jerusalem. So, you know, they weren't going to last long after Jesus. So this was the perfect time because they were fighting and they were probably at their most um, opposite corners than you can ever imagine. But let's listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. And there we read, now they, had forgotten to, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves and the five, uh, for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven uh, for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus is doing two things here. Uh, One, he's trying to challenge the disciples' faith. They've no bread. Uh, There was a spar advertisement at one time, wasn't there, Fred? Uh, There's no bread. Did you remember the peas? You forgot the milk. The disciples seem to be Fred. They've no bread. Or they have very little bread. And yet they had witnessed Jesus, the one who's with them in the boat, Feed 5,000 from five loaves. And how many baskets were gathered up? 12. And the same with the feeding of the 4,000. Seven loaves and seven baskets. But that's not the significance of this because the significance is what it begins with. Jesus challenging the Pharisees or a challenge about the Pharisees and about Herod. Now, whenever we read Herod here, we could substitute Herod and, or well, not substitute, but include the Sadducees in that. And in fact, some translations do have it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who multiplies. I'm the one who multiplies the bread. Just as yeast grows the bread, so I can multiply it. And, you know, whatever you have now, I can multiply it and feed you. But what he's linking this to is to the Pharisees. And all of those who are trying to to appease Herod under a false religion. He's saying, they can't multiply. I can. They can't. He's once again pointing out the deadness of the Pharisees. He says, the leaven 
Watch out, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, the yeast of Herod. Uh, Yeast needs a certain temperature to react. Somewhere between 36 degrees centigrade and 43 degrees centigrade. Too hot, you'll kill it. Too cold, it'll not react. And so somewhere between 36 and 43 degrees centigrade is what you need. So if you've ever wondered why your pizza dough doesn't rise, you need a thermometer and it needs to be in that area. Jesus was the right temperature. The Sadducees were too cold. The Pharisees were too hot. Killing off what was true religion or not even letting it grow. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's why it is just the right time that he came into the world, as Paul says in Galatians. Because these are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. These are supposed to be the religious rulers who are guiding the people, teaching them, instructing them, making sure that faithful practice is happening in all temple worship. And they're not. Their yeast is dead. It's not producing anything. The only yeast that is producing is that of Jesus, the one who has proven physically he can multiply not only bread, but he can multiply hearts that are drawn to Christ. And isn't that what happened? Twelve disciples. One who, who went the way of the evil one, but he was replaced by Matthias. Twelve started the church, and the church grew and replicated, and with healthy yeast grew into what we know it today. You see, the church will never die. Never. Because we have Christ. Christ died once for all. He doesn't need to die again. The church will always be because it is Christ who multiplies. Dead religion does not. And so at just the right time, as dead religion was flooding the Jewish system, Christ comes into the world as the Messiah, born of a woman, so that we would know true forgiveness of sins and true salvation. This is what makes the past six weeks uh, purposeful. (laughs) It's why you've had to endure these 400 years of history, because this is what it boils down to. Each of the groupings that we have looked at from part one, be it the Greeks, uh, be it the Seleucids, be it the Ptolemies, be it the Maccabees, they've all influenced the religious groupings at the time of Jesus. It's taken 400 years, but they've gone so far away from what was true that it's simply dead. And it's Jesus who is the one who brings life. And so the challenge for us really comes from James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27 there. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What James is saying here is true religion, true growth in Christ is actually living out what we believe about him. Living out and proving living faith, proving true religion. And James gives us example here by actually caring for people for caring for those in need and who, who are the, really the, the lowest of the low in society. But also to keep yourself unstained from the world by staying away from the things that would take us away from true faith. 
And how many Jews simply going about their daily lives were taken away from true worship of God by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Samaritans, the Zealots. They were pulled away. And so we too must be careful that we're not pulled away. We too must be careful about what we're watching on so-called Christian television stations, what we're listening to on Christian radio stations. We must be careful about what we read. And not every book that promotes itself as a Christian book is a good book. We must look at everything in the light of Scripture. That's why we must read Scripture day in, day out, so that we will know what is right and what is good. Otherwise, we too become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not relying on the Word of God, but relying on oral tradition or relying on themselves, as the Sadducees did. And so as we finish, there's three questions. The last one being what we've always talked about. What, there has to be hope from this. What is the hope that's in our hearts and the reason for our hope that we can share with others? What, why, is, why is this significant tonight? Because it points us to true religion. It points us to true faith. That that is our hope, that it's Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else, nothing of oral tradition, but Scripture and Scripture alone. But the other two questions help us considering the religious landscape in the first century. Why was it the right time for Jesus to come into the world? Why, in your mind, did he have to come in and speak against those things? Because once we understand that, then we perhaps may be able to see it in our own time. And then secondly, how can we identify those who might care more for religion than general faith today? And how do we ensure we remain true to what the Bible teaches? How do we identify false religion? How do we identify it so that we know we're not living in it, but also that we can help pull someone out of it so that they too can come to a living and true faith in Jesus Christ? You see, that blank page in your Bible has a lot to say. It teaches us how God has been at work so that at just the right time Jesus comes so that today we would know true living faith and not be weighed down by religion that will get us nowhere. I don't take your attendance here for granted, or if you're listening or watching later. I do thank you for coming and sticking with these six weeks. They may not have been your cup of tea, um, but I certainly hope the cup of tea that was provided was your cup of tea, thanks to those who have provided for those um, along the different weeks. But I do thank you for sticking with it. I can only trust that it has been of benefit, but more importantly, that we get a bigger vision of God and how he works in the world then so that we can be confident of how he works in the world today and in the world in the future so that we have hope of not dead religion, that when the statistics tell us the church is dying, no, the church is not dying. The church is living and vibrant. It's not about numbers, but it's about depth of faith now that makes us ready for eternity to come. So as you perhaps take time to look over these six weeks and see that whole thread of what's going through, that message of hope through those 400 years, may you truly have hearts that are filled with the love of Christ as you know his hope as he is at work today 
and tomorrow and for, for however long he gives us in this life. Thank you.